Check out the 7th Fall for Dance North Festival from September 11th to October 29th. The festival's collection of original live streams will be presented from Toronto but can be streamed from anywhere, and it includes new works from Guillaume Cote, Azure Barton, Mtutuzili November, and more. Explore the season at ffdnorth.com. friends and welcome to the dance edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer and i'm lydia murray we are editors at dance media and today we are first going to talk about how several long-running broadway shows as they return following their covid shutdowns are rethinking and restaging their depictions of race and then we will discuss two topics that I know are especially near to Lydia's heart. The first is how burlesque is becoming an outlet for many performers, women especially, from the concert dance world. And then the other is the critical role that dance plays in the K-pop industry. Why K-pop just isn't K-pop without choreography. I'm very excited to hear Lydia go off on all of that. Um, Before we get into those topics, though, we wanted to do a little plug for the next episode of the Dance Edit Extra, which is our premium audio interview series, because it's coming out this Saturday on Apple Podcasts. So this time around, we have the multi-talented Comfort Fidoki, who, of course, is a So You Think You Can Dance legend, and is now both choreographing for and acting in the new Fox series, The Big Leap, which is kind of an art-imitating-life moment for her, because the show follows a dance competition that has quite a bit in common with So You Think You Can Dance. So Comfort is in some ways playing a version of her previous self. And she talks about that. And then she discusses the importance of not just inclusive casting, but also inclusive choreographic teams in these kinds of entertainment industry projects. So I really hope you'll tune in for this one. You can subscribe to the Edit Extra on Apple Podcasts, and you can find out a little more about the series at thedanceedit.com slash podcast. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which not a lot of items this week, but it is an intense group of stories. Yes, intense indeed. Eight former staff members and students of the prominent dance company Break the Floor have accused its employees of widespread sexual misconduct. The company is launching an investigation and has released a statement that references the steps it is taking to improve its culture. Yeah, the allegations are significant, and they reflect a a broader culture of sexual abuse in the dance competition and convention industry. We've linked to the Toronto Star's really extensive reporting on all of the allegations in the show notes. A math teacher from John W. North High School in Riverside, California, has been placed on leave after imitating a Native American dance during a trigonometry lesson. A video of the incident went viral last week, but it looks like this actually wasn't the first time this teacher had used this particular teaching tactic. There's a 2012 yearbook from the school that includes a picture of the same teacher doing the same thing. Also kind of a big mess. We've included a link to some coverage of that in the show notes as well. I still can't believe she thought that was okay or that she was doing this for so long. But I, I, I mean, the fact that it was an annual tradition. Yeah, that's it does boggle the mind. Yeah. But moving on, uh, the former English National Ballet principal dancer Yatsen Chang has been sentenced to nine years in jail for sexually abusing his students. He had been convicted in May on multiple counts and was jailed this month. 
Ooh, that was a very grim beginning to our headline rundown. So I'm sort of relieved now to take things in a less grim direction. I mean, a more surreal direction, maybe, but a less grim one. Last weekend, Ye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, apparently bought out a performance of Lucinda Child's 1979 masterpiece, Dance, at the Joyce Theater in New York City. And according to Page Six, he brought an entourage of 12 people with him, including producer Swizz Beats. And I just, like, I don't know how to feel. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about this. I mean, the man has excellent taste, and I love this kind of artistic cross-pollination. Like, those worlds don't intersect enough. But, ooh, I don't know. I don't know what's going to come of this. Yeah. It, it will be interesting to see what comes of this. Yeah. Andrew Lloyd Webber has been in New York City guiding the Phantom of the Opera through its reopening on Broadway. Um, he's been giving detailed direction, and this sort of close involvement from a composer is very rare for a production this established. Uh, it typically only happens for newer shows, um, but because the pandemic caused such a prolonged shutdown, the show's return is being treated almost like a revival. Uh, and Webber seems very much in his element, which is great. He's been one of the most vocal public figures about the challenges facing theater throughout the COVID era. Um, so it's great to see him and Phantom back in action. And he was also DJing outside the Majestic Theater, which is where the show is performed. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, that was cool um, on reopening <laughs> night. I genuinely love to see it. What did the guy on Twitter say? New York's hottest club is Andrew Lloyd Webber DJing outside of Phantom. Yeah. Like, I mean... Andrew Lloyd Webber, never not everywhere. Uh, yes. Bless him. <laughs> yeah. That's like career goals. Never not everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So we are closing out the headline rundown today with two obituaries. Kariamu Welsh, a dancer, choreographer, scholar, and educator who wrote and edited seminal works on Afrocentricity and Black movement traditions, has died at age 72. And Thomas Dwyer, the dance artist who helped shape Dance Exchange after joining the organization in his 50s, died recently at age 87. Okay, after that roller coaster of a headline rundown for our first discussion segment today, we wanted to get into a recent New York Times piece about how several long-running Broadway shows are rethinking their depictions of race. Because a whole bunch of big hits, I mean, Hamilton, The Lion King, The Book of Mormon, Jagged Little Pill to some extent, they're all returning from pandemic shutdowns with script and staging changes that address criticisms that in some cases have been floating around for years now, but all of which intensified following last year's protests against racism and police brutality. And this actually ties in, I think, to what you were talking about earlier, Lydia, with Andrew Lloyd Webber, this idea that a lot of these comebacks are essentially being treated as revivals. Like, it's not uncommon for newer shows to get this kind of tweaking repeatedly in previews or for classic shows to get updated when they're revived. But it is different for a bunch of smash hits to be adjusting their content in essentially mid-run. That is something new. Um, and it seems like it might be one of the silver linings of that long pandemic pause is that it gave the creative teams behind these big, slow-moving Broadway machines time to rewrite and restage and rethink things. Yeah, I definitely think it's an advantage. There have, of course, 
been longstanding concerns about racism, specifically in several of these productions, as you said, and those were largely going unheard before the pandemic and before this racial reckoning. Um, and in terms of some of these subject matter issues, like take Hamilton, for example, one of its glaring problems has been its depiction of the U.S. founding fathers as more progressive and less privileged than they were. Uh, and for years, some historians have critiqued the way that it paints Alexander Hamilton as an abolitionist, uh, as a supporter of the underclass, when he wasn't, and he even you know, bought and sold slaves for his in-laws. Thomas Jefferson is also portrayed in that play. The only time in the show when the name of an enslaved person is spoken takes place during Jefferson's big song, uh, and the enslaved person was Sally Hemings. So that's where one of the changes has been made, uh, because in the mm -hmm. past, Hemings's character had flirtatious undertones. She was presented more through the eyes of Jefferson. She didn't have any lines. Instead, she performed choreography. But now, instead of doing a ma, which is kind of used suggestively, she faces away from him and she cradles her arms, which kind of evokes the image of the children that she had by him. So that bit of choreography now perhaps better represents her perspective. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in Hamilton specifically, the changes that have been made are mostly to the choreography. It is that choreographic moment that makes the biggest statement in the show, that movement can have that kind of impact, even though it's a relatively small tweak. And I think there's another tweak in Hamilton, too, where there's a moment when Jefferson arrives at Monticello and the ensemble used to wear white gloves and sort of pantomime the actions of enslaved people at work. Now the gloves and their sort of minstrel connotations are gone. And some of the ensemble members, instead of doing that choreography, just stand there quietly without singing. So small, but impactful changes, mostly yeah. to movement. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's amazing how powerful those small changes can be. Um, and with all of these shows, are the tweaks enough to fix every diversity-related issue involved? Probably not. But they're a step in the right direction. And the idea that a show no longer needs to be frozen, so to speak. It doesn't have to be locked into one final version, and it can evolve with the times. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. And it echoes ideas that we've heard circulating in other parts of the performing arts world that deal with like long running works or like pieces that are considered canon, like especially in ballet, this idea that just because something has been popular for a while doesn't mean it shouldn't be reevaluated and actually being good stewards of these like classics, that responsibility should include updating over time. Um, so it's it's nice to see that mentality come to Broadway as well in such a significant way. Yes. So next today, we're going to discuss a recent dance magazine piece about burlesque. And specifically, the story looks at how more and more performers from concert dance backgrounds are beginning to find just a different kind of freedom and support in burlesque, because it's an environment where women's choreographic voices and women's bodies are more likely to be celebrated. It's not quite a utopia, and I think the feature does a good job probing some of its shortcomings too, but burlesque does seem to offer a much wider range of self-expression than other kinds of dance performance, and it also just seems more open to the idea of change. Let's be clear, this story happened because of Lydia. Well, this no, story... I don't want... <laughs> I'm not taking all the credit, but... but... credit where credit is due. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm so glad and honored to have consulted on this piece, uh, which was wonderfully written by Rachel Rizzuto. Um, and I've kind of been championing burlesque kind of behind the scenes at Dance Magazine Yay. and stuff. So I'm just really happy that this, you know, that this happened. But yeah, so kind of getting into some of what the story covers. So first, with just a little bit of an overview of burlesque history, 
So burlesque dates back to the Victorian music hall shows in the second half of the 19th century, um, and the predominant version of burlesque today is most similar to the vaudevillian style that was popular in the early 1900s. Um, it thrived during Prohibition, and then it got shut down due to censorship laws in the late 1930s, and then it came back in the 40s and 50s. And it's had these periods of you know, decline and revival for decades, but it never really fully dies. Um, so regarding its connection to dance, burlesque performers do not need to be trained dancers. I know a lot of people think that they do. They don't. Mm -hmm. A lot of them you know, are. Uh, but it's a field that allows for more individuality and creative agency than what's typically possible in dance. Burlesque is a very DIY, you know, do-it-yourself endeavor. Rather than solely being a cast member in someone else's production with little to no creative or administrative control, burlesque performers create their own acts, and what goes into an act is up to that performer. So they decide the concept, the costume, they often make their own costumes, they usually create their own choreography for those who do have choreography, uh, and they decide where they want to perform it. Um, they still need to apply or audition to be in someone's show most of the time, but they're less reliant on someone else to cast them and to help them shine. It, it almost, mm -hmm. I think of it kind of like uh, being a musician and getting booked for a show in the sense of being part of nightlife. Yeah, I love that kind of entrepreneurial spirit that's sort of baked into burlesque because, uh, yeah, it gives performers so much control over what they do and the way they look and how they present themselves on stage. It's all them. It's all their choices, um, which, yeah, I can, I can imagine being refreshing for a lot of people coming out of concert dance where you are told exactly what to do and what to wear and where to be and how to look most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Which that's something that appealed to me when I was, you know, briefly doing it. Um, but of course, that has its downsides. Like the, mm -hmm. the performer Jeez Louise mentioned that you have to promote yourself a lot. And that's an expectation. And you have to promote the show that you're in um, more mm -hmm. specifically. Um, you know, I think as she put it, you know, if you worked at Walgreens, you wouldn't need to say, you know, hey, come <laughs> to my, my location. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely different in that regard as well from dance, basically. Yeah, although I do feel like that kind of hustle culture is probably pretty familiar to a lot of independent dance artists, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or also your own marketer. <laughs> yes, very true. And several performers have found that burlesque is more accepting of diversity, particularly in body type, than the dance world. So one of burlesque's icons is Dirty Martini, who was one of the pioneers of the burlesque revival in New York City in the 90s. And she has a dance degree from Purchase College, but she faced difficulty finding work because she was a size 14 or 16, despite you know being so talented. But as Jezebel Express pointed out in this story, plus-size performers are still often made to feel like they can only do comedic routines and they have to, as she put it, you know, deflect their sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. So you can get to the top if you don't have what is considered, you know, the, the standard, I guess, body type or the body type that fits, you know, the mainstream beauty standards. But it, it kind of your, your your opportunities can still be limited, which is mm -hmm. a drawback. And Zelia Rose, who's a very prominent black performer, uh, said that she feels like she gets pigeonholed into being the token representation card, um, which mm -hmm. is you know another very real issue. Jeez Louise uh, also addressed how that affects audiences. Um, mm -hmm. you know, she said producers will ask you, will ask her, you know, how to get more diversity in their shows. 
And her answer is essentially, well, you cast mostly thin white ladies. So people who don't right. see themselves reflected in that won't go to your show. Put more diversity on stage. Yes. You'll get a more diverse audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think whatever the flaws of the burlesque world, I think the key thing is that because of its emphasis on individuality, because of its encouragement of self-expression, that does seem to make this whole scene just more open to change generally gets more more aware of its own shortcomings. And I think that's another reason why concert dance performers might find it so liberating, because that's just so unlike a lot of other dance environments. There's just there's more there's more hope there. There's more sort of room for growth, it feels like. I, I say to the expert who's actually been in the scene, would you, no. would you agree? <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> it's been years since I was you know, really like consistently active. I've kind of watched from the sidelines for a long time. It just seems like often in burlesque, there will be these conversations that are sometimes sparked by a particular uh, incident that you know causes outrage. Um and nothing really changes or things don't really <laughs> things are still slow to change which isn't actually that different from the dance world mm. um but i think because there's a little bit more openness to different i guess there's there's enough openness to individuality baked into burlesque that mm -hmm. even when that happens it still doesn't have um it's not it's still not quite as oppressive, I guess, as what you see in dance, if that makes any sense. That wasn't the best way to phrase yeah. it. Um, no, no, no. That yeah, an, an issue of degree in some ways. Another thing I noticed when I was more active on the scene is that some shows seemed to want to adhere to that old fashioned burlesque aesthetic. But that mm. just kind of perpetuates the discrimination of that era. Um, but solutions are in place. Like Jeez Louise produces an event called Jeezy's Juke Joint, a Black Burly Q Review is the whole title. Um, and that spotlights Black performers. And there's another major artist named Pearl Noir who isn't mentioned in this piece, but she created an event called the Noir Pageant, which was born out of a desire to, uh, to create a platform to help BIPOC burlesque artists become, to quote from the website, headliners, educators, and savvy entrepreneurs. And because Black performers have been erased from burlesque history, um, mm. that's also something to note. Uh, you know, there was Jean Idell, who was the first Black exotic fan dancer in the 1950s and the early 1960s that she was active. Uh, she, she attended the Catherine Dunham School of Dance. Uh, and when she became a burlesque artist, she not only rose to headliner status, but she helped integrate the white-only clubs. Um, so dance and burlesque have been intertwined for a long time and with a lot of these complex layers. And that's it for mm -hmm. my soapbox. <laughs> no, I love the Lydia soapbox. Lydia, seriously, thank you so much for, for your perspective on this because... I don't know. You sure are educating me. I have a feeling you're educating a lot of listeners, too. <laughs> the Dance Magazine piece about this, which Lydia consulted on, is also very clear-eyed in its assessment of burlesque. So please do go check it out. We've linked to that in the show notes so you can read the whole thing. So in our last discussion segment today, we're staying in very Lydia territory. We're going to look at the marriage of... <laughs> it's just my episode today. <laughs> this is. This is the Lydia Variety Hour, and I love it so much. <laughs> Um, so we're looking at the marriage of music and dance in the K-pop industry, um, because another recent dance magazine feature points out that it's very much a codependent relationship. K-pop just isn't K-pop without dance, and dance has been central to it from the very beginning. I mean, performers are expected and trained to execute complex dance sequences. Most K-pop songs are just like indelibly associated with their accompanying dances. So 
how did that dance culture evolve? What is it like to be a choreographer working inside it? How has it shaped the larger K-pop world? These are all questions that the Dance Magazine piece explores. And Lydia, I've been looking forward to hearing you talk about this article (laughs) since I first saw it on the editorial lineup. Yeah, I was so excited that this one happened. Um, So just because I'm going to use this term a few times, I just want to give a quick note that K-pop stars are called idols for anyone who doesn't know. So in K-pop, artist development is paramount and it is thorough. We don't really have a system exactly like it here in the States. Before someone becomes an idol, they typically audition to become a trainee. This is somewhat similar to the conservatory or boarding school or traineeship programs that we have in the concert dance world, but it's still, Mm -hmm. you know, different. So in K-pop, a young aspiring artist will attend an open audition. And if they're selected, they'll undergo an extensive training period in which they'll learn to sing and dance and speak foreign languages. And whichever you're best at will typically determine uh, your primary role in the group. And most K-pop artists start out in a group. They don't usually go solo immediately. Um, But yeah, and the groups typically have the same structure. So there will be singers, dancers, rappers, and visuals. The visual is kind of the the best looking member of the group, to sort of put it plainly. Um, And, you know, they can overlap. Someone could be, you know, both a dancer and a rapper and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So unlike here, where it's kind of hit or miss whether a pop star will be a good dancer or will even value dance moves that much, it's part of the model in K-pop, and it's used to help fans engage. Um, And the difference in levels between members means that they can do simpler steps that their fans can do at home, and they can do more complex moves that will keep the audiences really enthralled in the performances. Uh, And both kinds of moves will often be part of the choreography for any given song, And the choreographer who pioneered that fan-friendly style of K-pop choreography was Sean Evaristo. Mm -hmm. Uh, He noticed the lack of space in Korean nightclubs when he first started working in Korea uh, and how people kind of had to do these small movements when they danced. So he incorporated that idea into his work and it stuck. Um, He said that he wanted to make it so that the dance would be synonymous with the song. So you'd have to think about the dance every time you thought about the song. And I think that relationship between the song and the choreography has maybe even been reinforced in the era of TikTok. TikTok. Let's say, yep. yeah. Um, Taylor even, made for TikTok. Yeah, yeah, it really works well there. But even before TikTok, I, you know, I can't even hear someone say the song name do 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 by Blackpink, for example, <laughs> without doing the little finger gun move. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's the, the two, the, the relationship between movement and music and K-pop is just so strong. I don't even have anything to add, Lydia. This is like Lydia's masterclass. I love it. I, I mean, the other, I guess the other thing that the Dance Magazine story touched on was the sort of mishmash approach to choreography that can sometime happen, sometimes happen in these videos where multiple choreographers will, will send choreography submissions and mm-hmm. then the entertainment companies will sort of mix and match bits and pieces and so that sometimes the choreographers themselves won't even know what's made the cut until they see the video. That's interesting and can make crediting really complicated. Yeah. Yeah, that I didn't know about until reading this piece, um, which is really interesting. I have nothing to add. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> paraphrasing this story. Once again, we're, Lydia's knowledge is incredible. We also are directing you to read the story, which incorporates a lot of the things she was just talking about. Um, Christy Young did a great job on that piece for Dance Magazine, and we've linked yes. that one in the show notes, too. Yes. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Lydia Variety Hour. (laughs) We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. See you soon, everyone. 
The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.